Good morning, and welcome to this morning's service. If you have a bulletin, um, please uh, review through it. Um, if you're a first-time guest, uh, there is a uh, little package back there for you that uh, is, a, is a gift. Um, and then Awana has started, so it's every uh, Wednesday at 6 p.m. here at the church. And then um, wanted to also remind you that the women's uh, Bible study uh, has started uh, Tuesday mornings. And just to give you a little early up update, or not an update, but a notice that um, the congregation annual congregation meeting is going to be held on February 5th uh, at uh, noon or right after the uh, morning service. Uh, so please uh, put that in your calendar and uh, as a reminder. Okay, reading from God's Word in uh, John seven, chapter 17, uh, verse uh, 22 to tw and 23. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them, and them and, and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. May God add blessings to the reading of his word. Um, would would uh, please bow your heads and go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, the day that you've made, that uh, we have opportunity to gather freely here and to uh, just hear your word uh, taught to us by our pastor. Father, we thank you for him and his family and uh, all those that participate in the worship service as well. We just thank you for them and all the activities here at El Paso Bible Church. We thank you for the progress on the new building. And Father, we again thank you for uh, who you are, what you've done for us. And we thank you for the message you placed on uh, Pastor Josh's heart, that he brings that message to us, that uh, we would be edified and uh, blessed for having hear your word. And Father, we thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning, church. Would you stand with us for a time of worship? Oh 
makes the darkness sin and darkness whose love is mighty and so much stronger the king of glory the king above all kings Shakes the whole with holy thunder, who leaves us breathless in awe and wonder. The King of glory, the King above all kings. This is amazing grace, this is unfailing love that you would take my place. That you would bear my cross You laid down your life That I would be set free Jesus, I see for all that you've done for me our chaos back into order who makes the orphan a son and daughter the king of glory the king of glory who rules the nations with truth and justice shines like the sun in all of its brilliance the king of glory the king above all kings this is amazing grace This is unfailing love That you would take my place That you would bear my cross You laid down your life That I would be set free I see for this is amazing grace. 
There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. No wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. There's no shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, lie you won't tear down, coming after me. These bones will sing. Great 
decir. Well, good morning. Hope you're doing well this morning. We got a few folks out today building houses across the border. Um, so pray for them as well as we're going to pray for a variety of things this morning. Um, I'm reminded frequently in our worship time that I'm easily distracted from the most important things um, by life. What are children? Y'all could go to children's church. I didn't mean to not dismiss you, um, but if you'd like to go, and if that's where you're headed today, and all of that is determined by the sovereignty of your parents. So if parents, if you want your kids to stay in the service, they're certainly welcome uh, to do that. People have different philosophies on that sort of thing. Um, but we, we leave that up to you. Um, but uh, we have a lot, of, a lot of things to be thankful for at El Paso Bible Church. We also have a, a lot of people uh, that are struggling with various health issues and things like that. Um, and so I want to make sure that we do that. We, we pray for those things, uh, recognizing that we are streaming all over, so we're necessarily not overly specific in a lot of things, just for sake of privacy. But I want to make sure that we do that as a body together uh, this morning. So if you would join with me, and we'll pray before we begin this morning. Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you for your grace to us. Uh, grace that grants us life forever with you, beginning from the moment we believe in your Son for eternal life. And we thank you for that. Uh, we thank you for the strength to live this life uh, in your presence, walking before you, walking by your Spirit. Uh, well, and some of us are, are walking in ways that are difficult, health-wise particularly, um, and Father, we ask your blessing of, of healing. We unabashedly ask for healing, Father. But in addition to that, we, we also ask for strength, discernment, wisdom, comfort. Father, knowing that we do not know your mind and we do not put ourselves in your place, but we ask the best that we can with audacity, actually in the face of what we see. We ask for those things for you. Father, we ask for healing um, for our brothers and our friends that are suffering today. Uh, Father, we ask for healing in relationships, as we're in First John here talking about the nature of fellowship and the key to joy in our lives, and loving as Christ loved. Um, Father, we, all, we do love you, and we want to know how it is to love you better not simply because you demand that of us, but that you have designed it to be the best for us. And we thank you for that. We love you. And in your son's name we pray. Amen. Uh, we're going to continue this morning. Um, as I say every time, and y'all are always unsurprised when I say it. We're going to continue our series in First John chapter 4. Um, and you remember, we, we have to always make this distinction. Uh, Martin Luther is credited with saying, and I think this is one that he actually did say. It wasn't like Abraham Lincoln said it, right, on the internet. Uh, Martin Luther said that I preach salvation by grace through faith alone every week because every week people forget it. 
And other things are like that. We do, we, we do that. We make sure that we keep that doctrinal truth, the most central truth of how we pass from being dead in our trespasses and sins to alive in Christ, simply by grace, through faith, believing in Jesus for eternal life. We have to keep this distinct so that we understand all the things that are not that. And 1 John is a key example of that. Uh, the topic in 1 John, uh, of course, is fellowship. You can't get through the first few verses without knowing that that is what John wants to talk about, how his readers as believers in Jesus Christ can have fellowship with the apostles whose fellowship is with God the Father and with Jesus Christ, so that all together their joy is brought to fullness. Um, and so we don't, we don't play games with that. Um, we, proper under, we properly understand justification to be a punctiliar act of God's declaration that declares us both righteous and alive in Christ, our identity permanently affixed in and to His identity. And that's made clear again here in, in this chapter and in these verses that we'll look at today. And so, when John speaks to believers about how they need to live their lives, that is a different topic. So we understand fellowship to be a different topic, joy to be a different topic. We know intrinsically that not all believers are living every day of their lives with the fullness of joy. Yes? I won't ask you to raise your hands if you're experiencing the fullness of joy this morning. But we can. We can. This is a potential your position in Christ is not a potential position in Christ. It's something you have in fullness. But John describes this as a process, a process that sometimes needs correction, sometimes needs remediation, sometimes needs advancement. When we sin against one another, we're supposed to confess those sins. Um, we're always to keep our eyes forward looking in anticipation of the culmination of the great love which the, with which the Father has loved us, so that when we see Jesus as He truly is, then we'll, we, we, we will be like Him. And so these things are important distinctions that we make. We need to understand that distinction, not just for First John, but First John is important, uh, between the topic of justification and all the other topics that the New Testament includes um, so that we understand that the contrast, even if they are harsh, and this is hard for people to understand, there, there are people who just kind of, we call it folk theology, I guess. They, anytime anything harsh is said in the Bible, they presume that it's talking about somebody else. <laughs> See, in the South, we have that problem, right? Some people describe the difference between us and them, right? Actually, Texas is its own thing, right? But south and north is the people who are from the north are hard on the outside and soft on the inside. People in the south, soft on the outside and hard on the inside. Meaning, the more polite we are to you, the probably the least we know, the less we know you, right? That's how the, the south works. I don't go around making demands on other people's children, and neither does God. When God is speaking, He may, you may need, you may need harsh 
discipline in your life as a child of God. So don't make the mistake, because there is some harsh language in 1 John that is applied to believers. But the distinction that is being made in 1 John is between believers who are loving the way Christ loved, loving one another, other believers, particularly the way that Christ loved those believers, experiencing fellowship and engaging in the fullness of joy and need to continue. Those people all need to continue. If you're doing that today, that's something we need to stay doing. It's not something that we get, we check off the box, right? Those believers who need to keep doing what they're doing and those believers who are not loving the way Christ loved and need to start. It's all believers. All believers. When he uses we and us, there's only one time that he uses a different pronoun. He says, those people went out from us. They have the spirit of the Antichrist. They went out so that they would be known. That's the one time. But he never uses we and us for those people. They are distinct. In order to do that well, we need to learn. You need to learn. You need to learn stuff. Anybody here? Like if anybody feels that they need to stop, they've already learned everything, that I'm in the, we're in the wrong relative position. I committed when I took the job of pastor to El Paso Bible Church in 2008 and again in 2015 that I would not stop doing that. Okay, but if anybody here is more qualified than me, that, you know, I'll yield, I guess. I mean, I've never had any takers. Um, you know, I just pray to the Lord that I never have a heart attack at 11.30 p.m. on a Saturday night, because then it might cause somebody else to have a heart attack, you know? Um, but we need to learn, and in order to learn, God has provided pastors and teachers to the church to teach God's Word, not like my son Isaac would prefer that I simply stand up here and read it to you, although there is benefit to that. Uh, Every Sunday, Isaac asked me, Dad, why didn't you just read those verses? Because that's not how it goes, son. I've explained it in more depth to him. You need, the, you need more scriptural truth, but there are a lot of people out there claiming to be teachers who are teaching things that are aberrant to the Bible. And so John gave us a litmus test for the teachers. He says that he called them spirits. He said there are people teaching according to the spirit of the Antichrist, and there are people who are teaching according to the spirit of God. And there is a litmus test, and it is Christological. It has to do with how they understand and teach the person and work of Jesus Christ. Those who confess Jesus are teaching according to the Spirit of God. Now, that is not simply using Jesus' name because you understand that there are many people who use Jesus' name as a, as a covering for terrible things or flaky things or flaky terrible things. Those aren't mutually exclusive. You should be a terrible flake. Anyway, that's a rabbit trail. Not simply using Jesus' name, but confessing Jesus. Saying the things about Jesus that Jesus claimed for himself, right? To say the same things. Homo legeo, confess what the biblical record and what Jesus himself claimed about himself to confess Jesus. That is the litmus test for determining what teachers you should listen to, you should yield to. That's what he said. 
Only those teachers who confess Jesus are teaching according to the Spirit of God. Now, we ought to make clear, because somebody actually asked me this last Sunday when, we, when I mentioned that. He says, so, so I need to find a teacher who teaches me how to confess Jesus. Not exactly, but that's part of it. That's the test. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you are seeking someone who to heed, someone to learn from, that person needs to pass that litmus test. But not everything that he teaches you is going to be directly about Jesus. Okay? Jesus is central and primary in his person and work. Sometimes, though, he's not going to necessarily tell you what Jesus did for you, but what Jesus wants you to do. And people get upset at me when I do that sometimes. Jesus wants you to do things, and not everything that you... So there's a lot of things Jesus did that he did on your behalf for you, substitution for you that he does not ask you to do, but there are things that he wants you to do. Well, that's how you determine who you're going to listen to, but that may not be the content of everything. Many people use Jesus' name, but they don't confess Jesus. So you need to apply that test, and it is essential. It is essential to the nature of biblical teaching in order to be correct and according to the Spirit of God that their Christology, the doctrines they teach about Christ, to be biblical and correct. It is also important for you guys to have correct Christology. And John indicates that in these verses here. It is essential for every believer's life. Right, verse 14 Again, this is the we. We, this is not from today. We have seen the perfect active indicative. We did that. We observed it. And we are testifying. That's a present active indicative. We're doing that now, presently. We have seen and are testifying that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. That is a Christological doctrine that Jesus is the Savior of the world. People play games with the word world, and in John's writings, it is to me abundantly clear that he means the whole world. He actually says that in 1 John 2 2, as far as the propitiation of his sacrifice. In fact, I probably said this to you before. Actually, the word cosmos, the question there isn't whether it includes all of humanity. <laughs> Biblically speaking, we go and do a word study for cosmos. The question isn't whether it includes all of humanity. I think that's a given that when Scripture says the world, that's the basic meaning. The question is, in what sense could, would Jesus be the Savior of creation, of the cosmos, of the world? Because he redeems creation as well, right? Creation is talking about groaning, waiting for redemption. I think that's the indication there. So we, we're arguing, we ask the wrong questions when we're asking, did Jesus, does Jesus love everybody? Did Jesus die for everybody? He's the Savior for every, of every human? That's, that's a misdirection. That's actually not the right question to ask. So you can ruminate on that, maybe ask that question. In what sense is Jesus the Savior of creation? Right. But recognition, right, of Christ's Savior nature, Savior of the world character, is necessary for us so that we can love people as we ought to do. We need to understand what his love is like in order to emulate it. And then we move on to verse 15, right? Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, 
God abides in him and he in God. This is another Christological doctrine that is necessary for believers to embrace and not necessarily to go to heaven when you die. I'm not sure that that's what the occasion here is. I don't think that that's what that means here. Because you're supposed to learn this, right? You have to, you're going to say the same things about what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God that Jesus said. That's a process that you need to engage in. We need to be able to confess what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. Uh, this is one of the areas where we a lot of times see a lot of differences of understanding between a biblical and orthodox Christianity and cult, to say it as direct as possible, uh, sects that are outside of orthodoxy. He's the Son of God, and in order to confess Jesus the way the Bible presents him, we need to acknowledge that. Uh, the Son of God refers to the fact that Jesus is the monogenes of the Father. He is the unique Sometimes we translate it the only begotten, but the idea is that he is wholly other in his sonship. There's no one like him. There's no other corollary. There's no analog. There's no way to recreate or clone the monogenes. He is the Son of God. John 1, 17 and 18 says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. See, some people will tell you that Jesus simply claiming that he is the Son of God, the begotten of God, the monogenes, the heir of God the Father, does not mean that he is himself God. John doesn't leave that open to you. Here he is clearly talking in John 1 about the nature of the Son, the nature of the Word, the nature of the Messiah, of Jesus the Christ. And he does not call him the only begotten Son of God. He calls him the monogenes of the Father of God. The monogenes who is God as well in both in John chapter 1. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Here it is the only begotten God. John makes no bones about the fact that the title Son of God is an indication of Christ's divinity. So he is, in his essence, fully God. He is uncreated. This is something that some people haven't really thought through, but then the nature of, if your God is created, you're worshiping the wrong thing. You need to find the thing that created the thing you're worshiping. Right? It's a basic principle. Lots of people miss that one. I don't know who decided that they would worship a frog like the Egyptians did. They had a frog god or a desert gnat deity. Anybody? I kind of joke with people that say that having a Christmas tree in your living room is an idol. You know, I, I've never been tempted to bow down to a piece of firewood for decoration. Never done that. 
But it, truly, Ryan, you need to understand theologically that if you're worshiping something that was created, then you need to worship something else. He is uncreated and he is incarnated. He is God, fully God and fully man in the flesh. John says that he is the only begotten God who reveals the Father. He is not the Father, but he reveals the Father. He exposits the Father, you could say. As the Word, he is the primary expository sermon of theology proper. He tells us about who God the Father is and what he does and how he loves. That's important. Uh, I mentioned in Sunday school that we may do a study after we're done with our current book just on the, the doctrine of Christ, the Christological topics. One day we'll do that, I think. It would be worthy to spend that time. But here it is not only that the doctrine is stated, but it is connected to an experience. He says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, uncreated, incarnated God himself, God abides in him and he in God. This is the the overflow of that confession of Christ as he is, who he is, and what he has done, his person and his work, that we have this reciprocal, mutual experience of abundance with God. A fullness, a, it's, some people say this is a restoration of the garden experience. I don't think that that's enough because he is not abiding with us and us with God, but it is in him and he in us. It's an elevation of our fellowship with our creator. We don't move from where God wants us to be, and our sight of God is never impinged. It's never muddied. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We, there's the we, John and his readers, and by extension us, the church, we have come to know, perfect, we already, he's, he's saying something that's true about he and his readers, something that is possibly true for all of us. We have come to know, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him saying that they have confessed this, that Jesus is the Son of God. They are experiencing that mutual, reciprocal, abiding relationship with the Father, which is a tremendous thing to consider. And he's saying as a result of that, we have learned. We've come to know. Remember that a relationship is initiated on trust. Every relationship is initiated on trust. Yes? Right? 
No? Anybody want to disagree? Every relationship is initiated on trust. Yeah, all of them, right? So you trust Jesus. That is the singular qualification for you to go to heaven when you die. That's what by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And guys, if it's not alone, it's not alone. I know there's a fancy bumper sticker saying out there that isn't right. Alone means alone. Alone means alone. Once you have a relationship, you come to know people. Good, bad, or ugly, right? And not in Jesus' case, but I'm talking about in all of your relationships. You trust and then you know. He's saying, we have come to know this. We have come to the point of knowing that we have confessed that Jesus is the Son of God. We have experienced the mutual abiding experience, reciprocity with God the Father in this experience of our life that he's given us as a gift. And in that process, we have come to this point that we know Christ's love. We believe we were able to trust in it in a way that we weren't able to because of that knowledge which God has for us. It's a knowledgeable thing, and God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. What does it mean that when it says that God is love? It means functionally, right, that he is the definition of love. It also means that he is seeking the good of his children at all times. So we, cannot, we can't stray right from his definition. He is, he is the definition. God is love. It's an equative uh, statement. His character does not change. It's immutable. God is love. Nothing else can be said of that. Josh is not love. You were not confused by that, were you? Josh is not love. Josh isn't even very nice. That's okay. I'm okay with that. Josh doesn't try to be nice. We covered that. Josh tries to be kind and loving. But Josh is not love. You're not love. The world is not love. Therefore, your love, John told us that already. Do not love the world, for the, the world and its stuff is passing away. You're wasting your time taking your godness, the indwelling of the Spirit, your capacity to love and to place it on crap you can buy at Target. Right? That's a misplacement of your supernatural ability to express God's character in your life. God is love. Therefore, as his children, you have confidence that he loves you. and seeking your good, your best. We have come to that point. No, it's not God has come to that point. You frequently hear folk theologians talk about God as if he's progressing towards something. That's foolishness. God is. That's his functional identity. That's actually what he introduces himself. When Moses says... How, who shall I say sent me? He simply says, I am. 
And God tells him, I didn't reveal myself by name to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but to you I have revealed myself by name. We're supposed to use his name and understand who he is. He doesn't change. He doesn't alter. We can have confidence there. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Again, that is that reciprocal, mutual experience of having a perfect being seeking our best and seeking the best for those he loves altogether. By this, instrumental, this is the agency, this is the instrument by which this happens. By this, love is perfected with us. Now that's the same. Love is brought to completion. It is finished. You, you know that phrase very well. Lots of Christian t-shirts and bumper stickers and all that. If I were to tell you, even people who don't know very much about the Bible know that Greek word a lot of times, tetelestai, right? It is finished. Pretty much the same form here. It's a participle, not a, not a verb. but It is perfected among us, meta. Before, John told us that God's love was brought to completion in us, that that's an individual reality that God has delegated to us that we can have love perfected in us. Here he says that God's love is perfected among us. When we come to this knowledge and experience that mutual reciprocity of God's love where we have confidence that he is seeking what is good and best for us and we seek what is good and best for others, that is the end game. That is what love is designed to do. It's perfected among us. It is a passive, in a sense. It is God's work. It is God's work that is being completed in us and among us. He is responsible, and he receives the glory for it. It is a task that he carries out himself in us and among us. What's the purpose By this, love is perfected among us so that we may have confidence in the day of crisis, of judgment, my text says. Probably most of your texts say judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. As he is, so also are we in this world. That doesn't surprise you. You have your life in him, your identity in him. You are clothed with Christ. You possess by imputation his righteousness. That is your identity. That's who you are and I am. It's easy for me to say that's who you are. I almost start twitching when I say that's who I am. That's harder for me to say because I know me better than I know you. I can speak theological objective truth to you 
and declare it to be so and understand that God has imputed it to you. And I don't know if you have this trouble, but I have a harder time saying that's who I am. Because confidence is not native to most of us. Do you know somebody who just never appears to lack it? Some people accuse me of that. I don't know who they're watching. I'm just, you, you just always act like you always know what you're doing. <laughs> Are you kidding? Ah, y'all so funny. It has its purpose. And we have the, all of this when we're immersed in, embraced in a reciprocal, abiding love relationship here. Love is perfected among us so that we may have confidence in the day of Christmas. And here's, here's the, the folk doctrine problem. When I say that, I say it's not very refined. Is that when you read the word judgment in English, you jump to something that judgment is not, most likely. And you say that judgment is punishment. That is not true. That isn't even true under English common law, under Western civilization's legal system. It is not even reflected in a court of law, right? Because if you are in a criminal case, right, you have a sentencing hearing and the penalty hearing, the punishment. Those are two separate things. Those take place. They have to establish guilt. And punishment is not at play in the guilt hearing. I think it actually goes back to biblical standard here. You hear judgment and you think punishment. Stop doing that. Chrysis means evaluation. Judgment. I mean, judgment means that. We just have a problem in our brains. We don't connect. We connect it with only one dot. It's an evaluation. It's the application of discernment, of evaluation. And you realize that, that Paul teaches, and John also teaches here, that we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the chrysis seat, the bima it's called in a lot of places, as believers. Remember that the bima is a judgment of the living. Everyone who is alive, everyone who appears there is alive in Christ. When they get there, they are alive in Christ when they leave. It's an evaluation of our stewardship of the gifts that we have and the life that we live in Christ on this earth. That's simply it. And what John is teaching us here is that the process of abiding in love, abiding in God, and God abide in us, of having that love perfected in our midst among us is the primary determining thing. Not how much money you earned or how much money you gave, not how many times you avoided making political jokes. Not how all that. None of it. Not how famous you were. Not how unique you were. Not how weird you happened to be in the world. But how you loved. How love was perfected in you and among you. Among us. Right now, my, my, this is weird. My oldest, barely oldest son, 23 minutes. We call him by convention the oldest son. I argue that Micah and Gideon are exactly the same age because they're identical twins. It's a biological reality of their conception. 
But by convention, 23 minutes older son, Gideon, is in, in law school now. And he came to visit over Christmas, and he, as my sister would say, was a massive stress muffin, like a, a, a ball of stress. Because you only get one grade <laughs> in all of these classes. One. It's the final. And he didn't have any of them when he came to celebrate Christmas. Merry Christmas. He was a little stress ball. I was like, son, you got to join the club. I've been in school a long time. I also just finished classes, and I also don't have my grade. Now, some people have confidence all the time about stuff like that. I'm fine. I don't. I did. Did the best I could. Everything, everything is screeching in. I mean, just on fire, heels burning just to hit the deadlines. It's not a good feeling, is it? To not have confidence especially in something that you want to achieve, something that you want to do. Do you all want to do what Jesus wants you to do in life? He wants you to love like this. There's only one thing that you're getting evaluated on. You're not getting evaluated on all the things that the world says that are important. You're not getting evaluated. Oh, goodness. How can we list all the things you're not getting evaluated on? That's why John is such a short book. He didn't bother doing that. Oh, you're not getting evaluated on a whole bunch of things. You're getting evaluated on how you loved other believers. And remember that at this judgment, at this discernment, evaluation event, you're alive when you get there and you're alive when you leave. Permanently, absolutely. No matter what the evaluation of your stewardship is, Everyone John is talking to is a believer in Jesus from whom, for whom they cannot be separated from Christ's love, from by anything. They are not subject to any judgment as to whether they have life or not. There is a judgment for that. Remember, there's the judgment of the living, that's the bima. The great white throne judgment is the judgment of the dead. No one shows up there who isn't dead already spiritually speaking. And no one is alive when they leave. And that is something that you dare not conflate. Right? Conflate means to adversely mix together, improperly mix together. You don't want to conflate those things, those judgments. And that is very, very common. That is what people do in order to teach you that you do not have security in your possession of eternal life. Security in your justification if they teach you that you can show up at the great white throne as a believer in Jesus Christ, then all bets are off, aren't they? Because it says, literally, you're going to be judged based on your works. And if your works are good enough, after they open the books, then you get in, but nobody does. That's not where you show up or I show up. A believer in Jesus Christ doesn't go there. We've been with Jesus, as I read it, for at least a thousand years at that point. Right? Yes? Am I counting that right? I think so. Right? 
No, excuse me. I'm getting my chronology right. Oh, that was seven years. Anyway. Regardless, we're with him. And Paul tells us other places that uh, once we're with him, we will never be away. We'll be with him forever. That point forward. So please don't do that. But also don't make the foolishness, the foolish statement that says that believers never stand before Jesus for evaluation. That believers don't go before Jesus in a, in a manner of judgment. Or he's going to do this because that is, that's foolishness. That's not what the scripture teaches. We do appear before Jesus, all of us must, to give this account, this evaluation. Part of confessing Jesus in scripture Right, saying the same things about Jesus that Jesus says about himself, that the Bible says about Jesus, is acknowledging that believers will appear before him at the Bema, and he will evaluate the stewardship that we have exercised in our lives. And the way that you have confidence in that is love. In that day of Christmas, you know what's on the test. Did you ever have teachers tell you that in high school? All of my teachers said that. You guys all know what's on the test. I'm sitting, y'all, y'all must be better students than I. And it was not hard to be a better student than I was. I was actually kind of lazy up until my master's degree. (laughs) I was just able to pull it out. But when teachers would say something like to me, you know what's on the test. They're like, never. Jesus tells you you have what's on the test. Simply this. It's his commandment, it's his expectation for us in the world that we would be as he is in the world. That we would do his ministry and what he wants us to do. And he wants us to have confidence. That's another difference between him and some of your human teachers, right? No, you never had a bad one? You never had a bad teacher that wanted, wanted to fail people? I had a couple that wanted you not to be challenged, but to be crushed. Jesus doesn't want that. He wants you to have confidence. One thing on the test, whether you loved or not. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for all the truths in it. That your children cannot be separated from the love that is in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the truth that you have given us a purpose in this life. That we would be as your son is in the world. That we would love and that love would be perfected in us and among us. We thank you for the privilege and the blessing that it is to be granted participation in your work on this world and in this, in this world. Thank you for it. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You stand with us. We'll dismiss with a song.
service. See you guys next week.